Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Upholding the Truth. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Good News to Our Neighbors. God wants every local church to be an attractive beacon calling men and women to know God through Jesus Christ. See, no local church exists for itself alone. It exists because God, in his compassion for a lost and erring humanity, has placed it on earth to be a voice calling for the lost to find that for which they have been created. We really do get that sense when reading 1 Timothy. Yesterday, I started to reflect on 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, so let's go beyond that today, rereading verses 1-4, to and then going all the way through to verse 7. And so here now, this is the Word of God, 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Yesterday, I reflected on the first part of that passage. Christian people in their worship of God must include as a part of worship prayer for those in political leadership as well as for others in public life. We desire as a part of our duty before God to be earnestly in prayer for our country as well as for our local community. We know there's a general grace that God gives allowing for peace, order, government that behaves with a concern for justice. We know that when those pillars are in place, it blesses all. And in truth, as Paul indicates, it also blesses us as believers. We, like others, seek to live a peaceful and quiet life. The opposite would be horrible. See, having said that, let's look again at verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's begin with that very first word in verse 3. It's the word this. And so let's ask, what is the this Paul's referring to? Is Paul referring to dignified and godly lives? That is to say, when Paul says, this is good, does he mean that it's good that we should lead dignified and godly lives? Now, of course it's good. But in this passage, is that the idea that Paul wants to express? You know, as I've examined the grammar of this passage, the this seems to refer to everything that Paul's been saying. This is good means it's good that Christians, when they worship, should be praying for everyone in their community, which of course means that they should be praying for their government. This is good. Furthermore, Paul has said this is good, that we should lead well-ordered lives pleasing to God. This is good. But notice also that Paul says this is good because it leads to a conclusion. Leading decent and moral lives is pleasing to God who wants all people to be saved. We need look no further than what happens when the church is plagued by scandal, sexual misconduct, financial scandals, deceitful behavior. 
It makes it difficult to share the gospel. And that's because the world says, look at you and look at how you behave. Is that what the gospel of Jesus results in? And if so, no thanks. See, as Romans 2.24 says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But think of what happens when the opposite is the case. See, we live in a world that lacks purpose and meaning. And what if the world sees purpose and meaning among believers in Jesus? And we live in a world that lacks grace and mercy. And think of what happens when the world sees grace and mercy among the followers of Jesus. We live in a world where greed, hatred, sexual misconduct are expected everywhere. And think of what happens when the world sees generosity, love, sexual discipline, and genuine community among Christians. It's that which they have been longing for, and so they ask, what is it that makes you behave in this way? And that opens the door to sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And, says Paul, this is good. See, look again why it's good. God who watches our conduct is also the God who wants all people to be saved. So let's reflect on that, shall we? God wants all people to be saved. Now, we need to understand that almost all Bible teachers have struggled over verse 4. Why is that? Well, it's because we know that Jesus taught, and here I'm quoting Matthew 7, verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. According to Jesus, the vast majority will not be saved. And yet, according to the text we've just read, God wants all to be saved. See, that? what is the explanation of that? Is God unable to save all? Now, I do know the standard responses. I mean, first, that God has given every human being a free choice. And most of us have made a free choice not to be saved, even while that's not what God wants for them. So that's the standard approach. But I would argue it's too simplistic of an approach, and it doesn't take account into everything we find in Scripture. As but one example, and we could read many of them, but let's take one very easy example. Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Hope you heard that. No one seeks for God. Every one of us have already made a free choice. That free choice is not to surrender to God. We, as Isaiah has said, all have turned away and gone our own way. So here we have a conundrum. If all are rebellious and no one seeks God, and yet God has done something marvelous and saved some, and yet God wants all to be saved, see, what does that mean? And if you really want to dive deep into the deep end of the New Testament, theology, see, you might want to investigate everything from God's sovereign election and how it is that God effectually calls his own. But whenever we take that approach into 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, I think we miss the point. See, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 doesn't seek to answer the question, you know, of God's sovereign will over every single human being. Rather, it answers a different question. It answers the question of the heart of God. And God's heart is drawn to every single human being. He weeps over the lostness of the world. And he loves, and he dearly loves lost people. He wants them saved. And we need to settle that in our own hearts as well. See how easy it is for us to dismiss the eternal plight of lost people with words like foreknowledge and predestination and effectual calling, election, and so forth. Look, all those are good words, but if they take us away from the heart, that weeps over the lost. Well, then, in that case, you know, we've educated ourselves into a hard heart. 
We should never guess about who's going to be saved in the end. Instead, we should reflect on a greater thing, God's heart for lost people. And if you can remain dry-eyed while praying for the lost, you need heart surgery. God wants lost people saved, and so should we. But now, here I need to address another prominent error. See, there are those who would argue that since God wants all people to be saved, God would never allow anyone to be eternally lost. I hope you see how they get there. See, they reason if God wants all people saved, there would be no way an eternal, powerful God would allow anyone not to be saved. And so they either imagine a way in which unrepentant sinners are saved in the end, or they imagine a second chance after death, followed by you know a third and a fourth and a fifth chance, all the way down to never-ending chances in which finally, at some point, all are saved. Again, we're asking our text to do more than it does. See, this is not a passage either about election. You have to go to other places to get a theology for that. Nor is this a passage about universalism or particularism. But the very nature of the passage tells us that the majority are not saved, that they need to hear about a Savior. And it's the church's task to listen to the compassionate heart of the Savior and to embrace the call to preach the gospel. Look, we can't ever be satisfied with the way things are. At one time in my ministry career, you know, a respected man from my congregation walked into my office. He was a successful businessman in He'd pursued new business opportunities aggressively, and in the process, he'd become quite wealthy. And he asked me, John, when is it ever enough for you? See, I wanted to say, when was it ever enough for you to obtain earthly riches? I then said, look, it'll be enough when every man, woman, boy, girl in this city has surrendered to Christ as Savior and Lord, has become an active follower of Jesus. On that occasion, it will be enough. But before then, it will never be enough this church will seek after the lost. An integral goal of this ministry is to ensure that Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. That's why we emphasize a diversity of unique Bible teaching and engagement resources available through a variety of mediums, radio, online, free mobile applications, YouTube, just to name a few. Providing these resources ensures that anyone who desires to hear the gospel can do so at their convenience and at no cost. We're grateful for the incredible opportunity that's ours to share the gospel in your community, across Canada, and around the world. But this couldn't happen without like-minded friends, partners, and donors across the country. This Thanksgiving, We say thank you for blessing us, and in turn we pray that this ministry continues to bless all those searching to know Jesus better. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, or to offer a gift of support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. As a part of the gospel that Christians were to share with the world, Paul adds, and here I'm reading verse 5a, for there is one God. Now, some of you may not know this, but often when ancient Christian martyrs were being thrown to the lions, the crowd would shout, away with the atheists. So why were they calling Christians atheists? And the answer is 
because of verses like verse 5. There is only one God. And by implication, then, they were saying that all the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and all the gods of the mystery religions and all the temples built to house gods and goddesses were indeed no gods at all. There is only one God. Of course, Christians knew that from the Hebrew Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 7 tells Israel that when they enter into the land of promise, they were to destroy every single idol in the land, leave no vestige of them left over. The first commandment was clear. You shall have no other gods to be placed in front of or on top of the Lord. Now, of course, the followers of Jesus were not called upon to destroy the idols of the Greek or Roman culture, but they knew according to Luke 4 verse 8 that Jesus had taught them, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Paul had taught that in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14 when he said, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And John in 1 John 5 21 said, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so in spite of the pressure for Christians to share the Christian message as the story of one God who was greater and more loving than the other gods, you know, a message that would have easily been accepted in the ancient world, they refused. They denied any other God than the one God who sent his son into the world. I think we need to reflect on that and understand what that means. Yeah, we live today in a world, and indeed in our culture, a culture with multiple religious and non-religious options. I mean, we can pick and choose what we believe and whom we believe, how we believe. I mean, what's unacceptable in our culture, just like in ancient Ephesian culture, was the proclamation of only one God and only one way. You see, each of us needs to settle this. If there is only one God, we're now forced to see the plight of those who don't know him. If, however, we believe in many gods, we'll be happy to do no evangelism at all. But there's another question. Some of us may say, I mean, perhaps there is only one God, but perhaps there are multiple ways of both understanding and approaching this one God. Maybe it's like the, the Hindu story of the elephant and the blind man. You know, one blind man felt the ears of the elephant and said, well, an elephant is like a big leather blanket. And the other grabbed his trunk and said, well, the elephant is like a big fire hose. And another who was alongside the side of the elephant said, well, it's like a big wall. So say some, that should be our view of God. We're like blind men who have only a partial understanding of God. And that's what explains the various religions of the world. I mean, all of that would be fine and perhaps even possible. But who would know? If we were blind, it might be true. But the reality is that there is one man who was not blind, and his name is Jesus. And I'm happy to say that I'm blind, but I'm also happy to say that he's not. So let's reread verses 5 and 6. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, there are two important words here in describing Jesus. The first is the word mediator. A mediator is someone who brings two parties together. Like, for instance, in a labor dispute, a mediator speaks to both sides and brings both reconciliation. See, these two verses are very clear. There's only one mediator. The only way God and people can be reconciled is through a mediator. And Jesus is the only one. 
You know, perhaps you've been accustomed to praying to the saints or even to Mary, but they can't mediate between you and God, for there is only one. Don't you see it? Perhaps you're thinking, you know, I can get to God on my own, just like the illustration of the blind men and the elephant. I can grope my way through the darkness, never being sure of whether I've really found the the real thing or not. To say there's only one mediator is to say that there is only one way to God. But how can we say that? Well, the answer is found in the second word. It's the word ransom. See, when we think of the word ransom today, we might think it, you know, in terms of kidnapping, when the kidnappers demand a ransom for the life of their victim. It's not a bad illustration. See, in the ancient world, the word ransom was often used in buying freedom for a slave. That's also a great illustration. Let me put it in plain terms. Every single human being is in slavery to sin with the resultant death sentence on their life. No one can be saved unless they pay what is owing to God for their sins. But the debt is so great that only God has the resources to pay it. To say that Jesus is our ransom is to say that Jesus on the cross is the full payment of our sins to God. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price that only man could owe and only God could pay. And that's why he had to be both fully God and fully man. And when Paul says this is the testimony given at the proper time, he means that Jesus entered into the world at the proper time for this purpose. Now, here's a a word for all of us. You know, your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, your family member, all of them have a debt they can't pay. Jesus is the ransom for them. He's the payment that can be added to their account. But they can't know that until someone tells them. That's where you come in. You know, I was telling someone recently that my most productive years as an evangelist was while I was in university. I also had some very productive years while I was a church planter. I also saw many people come to Christ all through my pastoral ministry. But I know this, that my ability to touch people with the gospel is limited. See, I don't work in a secular setting where I can share Christ with non-Christian coworkers. But most of you listening to me have opportunities to do what I don't. And for that reason, each of us must be prepared to share the gospel in a way that makes sense to others. You see, many of us simply, even if we were asked what we believe in, couldn't put it into a coherent pattern on the spot. See, and I challenge you to learn and memorize a presentation of the gospel that's true and that can be easily shared. All of us must both understand how Christ paid for our sins on the cross and to share it in such a way that a non-Christian would have enough knowledge to know how to surrender their lives to Christ and become a follower of Jesus. Verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In reading verse 7, some of us may not understand why Paul put those words I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, right there. And the answer is that that many of the false teachers had a very narrow view of salvation, that is, a way of salvation through law-keeping available only to a few. They doubted Paul's words that God wants all kinds of people to be saved, and so they just dismissed him. And Paul says, this work of evangelism, of making the gospel known to the world, is why I was appointed an apostle. Remember, as we've seen, an apostle is one who has authority to speak on behalf of Christ for God. And Paul's saying, I can tell you with authority 
that this is why I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Now, we've learned in sharing our faith that we're to pray for different kinds of lost people, for political leaders to live consistently, to have God's heart for the lost, to recognize that there's only one way to understand how to share the gospel. But in all of that, there will be those who will want to discourage us. And so we add one more step in reaching out in Christ. We need to be confident in God's revelation, which, as we know, is in our Bible. In other words, know that when you share the gospel, that this is precisely what you're doing. You're sharing the very word of God that Paul shared. Can you do this? Yeah, you can. Is it hard? Well, no and yes. It's not hard in the sense that every faithful Christian can effectively share their faith with others so that they will believe. If every believer were faithful to this, and we all won just one person to Christ in the next five years, well, the faith would double in this country in five years, something that's never happened before. Is that hard? Yeah, because the enemy of our souls wants us not to do it. He knows that his kingdom will fall, and so he wants us not to be confident and will do anything just so that we won't. But you can share your faith. God has appointed both you individually and also your church to be active in making the gospel of Christ known, in winning as many as possible, because as we know, God wants all men and women to be saved. Thanks for your message today, John. Let me ask you this. Why does it seem like often evangelism gets lost amongst all the priorities of the church? Well, in one sense, I think that uh, we have an enemy of the soul that wants us to be busy in anything, provided that it's not winning men and women to Christ. And so um, whenever we move to the area of evangelism, we're going to find us in the heart of spiritual warfare. Uh, Personally, I can say, speaking for myself, Uh, Every time I've led someone to faith in Christ, pretty well the week after, I've been up to my, you know, eyelids and alligators, I like to say. Um, There have been all manner of events that have happened. It's now happened so regularly in my life uh, that I've come to realize that the enemy of our souls hates it when we win people to Christ or when the gospel is being shared. And um, so, uh, we need to we need to come back and recognize, yes, it is a fight, uh, but at the same time, uh, even though it is a fight, we're going to have to continue to return to it because that is precisely what Christ wants of us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Being that we celebrate Thanksgiving this month, we wanted to make sure to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your encouragement, prayers, gifts all mean so much. We're also grateful for your notes, letting us know that Back to the Bible Canada is impacting your daily walk with Christ. Sarah wrote, Dr. John's stories illustrate so clearly how to live out the truths of Scripture. Jordan wrote, your message was so timely for my heart. And special thanks to you for making this Bible teaching ministry possible. And don't forget to request your 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. John's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. It's our free Bible resource this month. Or if you'd like to make a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.